0: Necessarily so it ain't necessarily so the things that you liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so welcome to the Seavass lecture series. This podcast is sponsored by the Central Valley Alliance of Atheists and Skeptics, a secular voice in the valley. You can learn more
1: about us at cvaas.org.
0: Hey everyone, this is Mark. I'm excited to tell you that CVAS is coming up on our ninth annual Heretics Barbecue. This year our guest speakers include atheist and ex-Muslim, Hina Databoy, vice chair and members of Trans Motion Jess and Jordan Fitzpatrick, and gay atheist activist Ashton Woods. Sometimes I find it difficult to believe that Sevas has been around so long in the San Joaquin Valley, while so many other secular and skeptical organizations have faded. Not only have we stuck around, but our membership has grown as we have learned to be a better group. In this podcast we're going to take a look back at the CVAS 5th Annual Heretics Barbecue. This was held on October 7th, 2012, and our guest speaker was Brian Dunning, who gave us his presentation on Miracles. Unfortunately, we were not as good at capturing audio four years ago, so I want to apologize for the audio quality. Our equipment captured too much ambient noise, and it took a lot of effort to remove the worst of it. Also, the equipment had a hiccup and missed the beginning of Brian's talk, so I'll need to get you up to speed on the first five minutes that we didn't capture. Brian's talk was about five different miraculous things. These things included the incorruptible monk, a monk who died in 1927 and whose body has never degraded. The Angels of Mons, a group of angels who are said to have protected the British army from the Germans in the Battle of Mons during World War I. The Miracle of Kalanda, a farmer's amputated leg is miraculously restored. John Frum and the Cargo Cult of Vanatu, the mythology and religion of cargo cults. And finally, the Virgin of Guadalupe. The Miraculous Appearance of the Virgin Mary Before Juan Diego Brian starts by talking about Dasha Dazor Ischelov, a Buddhist lama of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Ischelov was a Buryard who are part of the Mongolian indigenous population of Siberia, which is now part of Russia. In 1926, at the age of 74, Ischelov told the Buddhist monks to leave Russia due to the beginning of the Russian Communist movement. Ischelov himself decided to remain. In 1927, he asked the other lamas to begin funeral rites since he was about to die. He died sitting in the lotus posture and according to his wishes he was buried that way. Part of Ischelov's testament was that he was to be exhumed by priests in several years. Instead, Ischelov's body was exhumed in 1955 and again in 1973 by monks who were astonished to see no signs of decay. However, Soviet Russia was anti-religious, so the monks let Ischelov's body remain buried until September 2002. And this is where we will let Brian take up the story and continue with his presentation.
1: made of nicely tanned leather, but you can see his facial features, Um, his hands are in very nice condition. It actually is quite impressive, and he died in 1927. So he's been there for nearly a century, for some reason his body did not decompose, and they consider that to be uh, a miracle, because supposedly he predicted that his body would not decompose after his death. So they say, here's what they actually say about him. They say he appears to have the condition of someone who died 36 hours ago. That's an exaggeration. He does look really good, but he doesn't look 36 hours fresh. They say he's got without any signs of decay, with whole muscles and inner tissue, soft joints and skin. As far as the soft joints and skin goes, that's something we have to take on faith, because uh, they they don't let you uh, actually, actually touch him. Although they do bring him outside quite frequently, but you're not allowed to touch him. And um, some time ago, uh, people were taking samples to try and test. There's no surviving samples of that that anyone knows about, and they have put a stop to it. So we can't verify much about that. The devout believe that he is actually still alive, which is why he's in such a great condition. But that he's in a trance-like meditative state, some sort of a Buddhist trance. And he's recognized as one of the official sacred objects of Buddhist Russia. Before I researched this, I didn't even know that there was a Buddhist Russia, or that there were a lot of Buddhist (laughs) Mongol temples. Now, he did leave instructions that he'd be exhumed, and this is largely where the story comes from, that he predicted that he was going to be incorrupt. After he died in 1927, his body was checked secretly in 1955. Now, secretly because, of course, this was the Soviet Union at the time, and they had all sorts of religious restrictions. And uh, they, weren't, they weren't so much into the uh, religious miracles. But in 1973, the religious restrictions uh, were lifted and to the point that in 2002, it was actually legal that he could be finally exhumed. And they actually finally exhumed him and took him out and, and had him on display ever since 2002. So what's interesting is to find out who this guy actually was and why his body actually is incorrupt. It was 1927. It's not like there was any embalming processes being used um, on him anyway. So when we look at who he was, um, he was actually a Buddhist scholar who had a degree in medicine and he wrote a Buddhist encyclopedia on pharmacology. 1927 was not so long ago that we were completely ignorant of everything, so he actually did have a decent medical knowledge. And as a Buddhist scholar, he would have been familiar with all sorts of Buddhist practices. And there's one that's quite interesting. It's called Sokushinbutsu. Sokushinbutsu is a Japanese Buddhist practice with which Ambalama Etibolov would have been familiar. It's the process of self-mummification, mummifying yourself before you die. It was actually successfully accomplished by about 20 Japanese Buddhist monks. So it sounds like a lot of fun to go through. Here's what you do. It's a 3,000-day process. That's over eight years. For the first 1,000 days, this is while you're still alive, you eat a subsistence diet of nuts and seeds. And that's it for three years, for a 1,000 days. Basically, the idea behind that is to get rid of all of your body fat, which probably works quite well. Uh, If you're thinking about a diet, check it out. For the second thousand days, again, while you're still alive, you eat only bark, roots, and you drink a particular kind of tea. You don't ever get poison oak? You know what the oil is called in poison oak? Yes. There's a tree in Japan that's basically the same thing called the urushi tree. They drink a special tea made out of urushi. Um, it's, it's called the, the toxica, toxicodendron. This tea, the bark in the roots, dehydrates, and they believe that it makes your body um, resistant to parasites and so forth. So it's actually a reasonably science-based process. At the end of these 2,000 days, you are going to be pretty darn dehydrated and skinny. If you know much about decomposition, that's a great way to get started if you want your body to not decompose. So the third set of 1,000 days is where it gets most interesting. The monk would then seal himself up inside a stone tomb. It only has one little hole in it, and through that hole he would ring a bell that's on the end of a little stick. And one day when the bell doesn't ring, the other monks come and they seal up that little hole. (laughs) They wait for the end of the thousand days, they open it up, and either they find a skeleton or they find a successfully mummified Sokushinbutsu victim. Practitioner, whatever the word should be. <laughs> now, humble Lama Itigalov left instructions that his body be preserved in salt. So again, he knew what he was talking about. There's no records that survive of what he may have eaten or done with himself during his last thousand days, two thousand days, what have you. But he would have been familiar with the practices of Sokushinbutsu. So, we think that it's safe to assume that he probably did this. He probably did this deliberately. Certainly, he did request that his body be preserved in salt, and that's a great way to dehydrate and preserve meat. So, as a medical um, medical expert of the day, a, a follower of Sh- Soku should uh, we find that it's probably not a miraculous explanation for his body to be incorrupt. Um, learning why and how it happens. Uh, actually, the whole thing of Sokushinbutsu was fascinating. I'd never heard of it before. And uh, to me, that's a much more satisfying explanation. So that's the first one. Now we're going to move on to the second one. Has anyone heard of the Angel of Mons? World War I, a miraculous angel appeared in the sky and led the British troops to victory over Germany and helped them fight. Does that sound familiar? Uh, Mary Norton, who is the author of Bedknobs and Broomsticks, acknowledged that she was inspired by this story for that scene in Bedknobs and Broomsticks where the, uh, uh, the, what is it, the, 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 the armor comes no, to life, yeah, light, yeah, and it chases the German soldiers away off of the island. And also, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien in Lord of the Rings, he acknowledged that he was inspired by the Angel of Mons story for the part where the, uh, the ghost army sweeps through the white city and chases away all of the little monster goblin characters. So the, the story says that the British troops were greatly outnumbered by the Germans, and they were miraculously rescued by the angel. And the evidence that's offered is how could they have won this battle against the greatly overwhelming German force unless they had some kind of divine intervention helping them. Well, here's a few reasons why they could have. The British were experienced marksmen. They had these Lee-Infield rifles. Um, and they were able to take down a man at 200 yards and they could fire 15 rounds of men. The Germans did not have that. The British had air bursting shrapnel, basically artillery that they could explode and kill the Germans from the air. The Germans did not have that. Over this two-day battle, the British lost 1,600 men and the Germans lost 5,000 men. So you can see that the British were vastly killing their German foes. However, unfortunately, the German force was simply too large and too overwhelming. And after these two days of of setbacks for the Germans, they did overrun the the British, and the British were defeated and had to retreat. So what history tells us is not that there was a miraculous deliverance of the British force by the Germans, because the British lost. Um, How can you say you were rescued by an angel when you lost the battle? So where did the story come from? Because the story certainly was not an account of what happened during the battle. It's a story that appeared. Fascinating the way this story came about. World War I is largely about propaganda, as is our many wars. Uh, propaganda, both sides are always trying to get the public enraged about the enemy. And one thing that the London Evening News did in order to get the British pumped up against the Germans was to com- uh, commission a story by a popular horror author named Arthur Macon. Might be Macon does anyone know him? <laughs> Dang. Some guy knew him at one of my talks once and, and corrected my pronunciation, and I cannot remember which way he corrected
0: it. <laughs> it's either Macon or
1: Macon. He wrote a story which was totally ficti- fictional and was presented as fiction. The Bowman was the title of the story, and in the story, medieval longbowmen from the Battle of Agincourt, which had taken place 500 years before, appeared, and these archers, these heavenly angelic archers appeared, and they slew the German force and allowed the British to advance. Totally fictitious. However, it was picked up by all these other newspapers as if it was a real account of what had actually happened. And suddenly we started having soldiers, quote-unquote, coming forward as having been there and witnessed this, Uh, all of of which stories were, were uh, easily discredited by later researchers who checked out their stories, who these guys who were, they, where they actually were at the time. Um, but nevertheless, we had this um, this case where a fictional story was just being believed, totally accidentally. I think of it as uh, just like the War of the Worlds, the famous radio broadcast that was not intended to actually fool people, but it did. Arthur Macon got up on his ear and was going everywhere saying, "This is a fictional story. I made it up. Nobody listened to it." One particular gentleman took advantage of this fact. Brigadier General John Charteris was the chief of British Army Intelligence at the time. His job was basically propaganda. Some of the other things that he, uh, stories that he spread, uh, one was that the Germans were rendering British corpses into axle grease in a special cadaver factory and just making stuff up like this. And he actually wrote a fake letter to his wife that he allowed to be leaked out. And the reason we know it's a fake letter is because it doesn't appear in the archives of the real letters that he actually wrote his wife. He wrote his wife a fake letter that was allowed to be leaked to the enemy intelligence, where he described this story of the Battle of Mons, the Angel of Mons, and actually got the Germans to believe that this was an actual event. Uh, this, was, this was a deliberate act of propaganda. When I was researching this episode that I did on this, I had um, a number of German friends go through all the German nu- uh, newspaper archives that they could and try and find the German reports of this, but weren't able to find any. I'm still hoping to, uh, but haven't yet. There's a great parallel that I like to draw between what they were doing here and another famous disinformation propaganda campaign. Um, what, what are eating carrots good for? What part of your body? Eyes. Eyes, your eyesight. During the Battle of Britain, these British night fighter pilots were having outrageously good success against the German bombers. Why? Well, the British let it leak that they were giving them carrots. And it was great for their night vision. There's no truth to that at all. It's, it's become an urban legend that everyone now believes. This is where it came from. Of course, what was the real reason that the British pilots were having such great success at that? Anyone know? Radar. Radar. It was a bullshit story made up to cover radar. <laughs> so very similar to what John Charteris was doing by promoting this story of the Angel of Mons. It was propaganda, just trying to get, uh, trying to frighten the Germans and get the British people pumped up that God was on their side. So story number three, this is called the Miracle of Kalamda. You ever heard it say that, why doesn't God heal amputees? Well, one time he did. In Spain in 1640, there was a one-legged young man named Miguel Juan Paiser. He was sleeping on the floor of his parents' home in a town called Calanda. and he woke up the next morning, he miraculously had two legs. And this has been, um, is it canonized? So what happened with this guy is that three years before, he was working on his uncle's farm. And through a genuine accident, uh, he fell down in a mule cart, ran over his leg, and severely injured his lower leg, uh, just below the knee. Uh, it broke the skin, broke his leg, and it was pretty grim and probably needed to be amputated. Uncle drove him to the hospital in Valencia. Uh, Valencia, I remember that, the hospital in Valencia. He stayed there five days. The uncle had to leave to go back to his farm, leaving uh, Juan page there at the hospital. They told him that he needed better care than they could provide, that he would have to go to the much larger hospital at Saragossa. And so they sent him, this is the weird part of the story, they sent him there on foot. And it took him 50 days to get there. So he's arrived in Saragossa and the doctors found his leg to be gangrenous and in a grievous state. And guess what they did? They had to amputate the poor guy's leg, uh, which makes perfect sense medically. The the, the amputated leg was then buried in a special plot at the hospital, was reserved for amputated parts. He stayed at the hospital for several months and they gave him a wooden leg and a crutch. And since he was something of an invalid, he needed to earn a living as a beggar. Well, to do that legally, you had to get approval from the church to earn a living as a beggar. And so he he went through that process and, and did. And he stayed in Saragossa for two years, attending church. He was a popular young man. Everyone knew the friendly young beggar with one leg. There's very little doubt that he was a one-legged beggar who lost his leg in an accident. And well-known and well-liked throughout Saragossa. Well, finally, after these two and a half or so years that he was gone, he decided to go back to his house and see his parents again. So he beggared his way back toward, uh, toward Kalamda, And when he got home, he's staying with his parents, and some soldiers came by. And they had one of those laws where if soldiers come by, you have to put them up in your house. So they did, and so he couldn't sleep in his bed. He had to sleep on the floor in his parents' bedroom. And that's what happened when he woke up the next morning. They discovered two legs sticking out from underneath his blanket. And everyone said, my God, it's a miracle. How wonderful. They called local church authorities. They came, and they, they observed that he had two legs. Everyone had seen him beggaring around town with only one leg. Uh, They collected witnesses from the neighboring villages who had seen him beggaring around town with just one leg. News of the miracle spread and the church sent an official delegation to investigate this. Um, They collected a lot of statements from all sorts of people from from all the different towns and they opened up a trial in Saragossa to see if this was a genuine miraculous event. And it took them Ten months, for some reason, to run this trial. At the end of which, they concluded that it was, indeed, a miracle. And the official records of this investigation survive today. They have been kept by the church. They're not fake documents. They're totally legit. It includes all of the interviews. It includes the minutes of the trial. It includes statements from the doctors at the hospital in Valencia, who treated his leg and then told him to go to Saragossa. The one thing that is missing from this thorough documentation is any statements from doctors at the hospital in Saragossa, where his leg was supposedly amputated. There's lots of statements from people who knew him as the friendly, kindly young beggar man in Saragossa. But it turns out that the one piece of documentation is not present, and is always overlooked in virtually any account you'll read about this is that there's no proof that his leg was ever actually amputated. There's statements by people who believed he only had one leg, and nobody ever saw it actually come off. Now, do you remember the movie Trading Places with Eddie Murphy? How do we see him at the beginning of that movie? He's rolling himself around on a skateboard, pretending to be a double amputee. The police lift him up, and his lights drop out the bottom. Rembrandt has a famous sketch of a beggar with one leg strapped up behind him like this. You can actually see his leg and he's humping around on a crutch trying to get money. This practice of tucking one leg up, pretending to be an amputee, is not original with Juan Miguel There, This is a time-honored tradition of the profession. So when we go through all the evidence, comb through piece by piece, it's such a convincing case when you hear it presented um, by the believers and you can verify every single piece of evidence that they have, and it's still completely bogus, because there was this enormous hole in the story that his leg was never actually cut off. He was simply faking it. Yay, sociology. <laughs> <laughs> okay, story number four. Imagine a beautiful blue island in the Pacific Ocean. A Vanuatu, formerly called the New Hebrides, and to this day, you may have heard of this before, the natives maintain a mock military square. They march once a year with rifles made of bamboo. They literally set up kind of a mock bamboo World War II camp. Fake airplanes, uh, fake tanks. Uh, their symbol is a red cross inspired by the cross painted the sides of ambulances uh, during the war. They're called cargo cults. They believe that if they recreate the conditions of World War II, that cargo will come to them and enrich them, as it did in World War II. It seems silly in point to us, but actually, it's amazingly convincing when you learn how they came to accept this particular belief. It seems so silly that just by from taking off your shirt and marching back and forth with a bamboo gun that suddenly um, the USO is going to land and here's your entertainment, here's your Coca-Cola, and here's your refrigeration and everything. But let's look at the history of what these people went through before World War II. The first Westerners to come to the New Hebrides were missionaries, the Scottish Presbyterian missionaries, and they took a fairly dim view of the natives' free living lifestyle. Uh, natives in the South Pacific, they're very promiscuous, they're very drunken. They've get, they're got they living large. Life is a giant party according to their regular cultural traditions. The missionaries didn't care for this very much, and so they imposed a penal system that they called Tana Law. There was no official um, legal representation on the island, so the, the missionaries made up their own uh, penal system. Tana Law created a whole series of punishments for natives that were caught violating any of the things the missionaries didn't want them to do. They weren't allowed to drink alcohol, they weren't allowed to swear, they weren't allowed to sleep with each other's wives, etc., etc., and they had to go to church on Sunday. Um, if they were caught breaking any of these laws, they, had, they were sentenced to hard labor it was basically the punishment that they got. Well, they didn't care for this very much, and there was uh, some tensions. But uh, but they, the, the people of the New Hebrides they did go along that They they were sort of successfully dominated by the missionaries. And there was one guy named Manahivi, a, a New Hebridean who sort of became um, a little bit of a social leader to them. He wore Western clothes like the missionaries did, and advocated kind of a, a weird have your cake and eat it too kind of thing. He said that if they returned to their traditional ways follow him and he would reward them with all sorts of material goods like the missionaries had. Now in later versions of the story the character of Manahibi has become sort of conflated and confused with um, an apocryphal character named John Frum. F-r-u-n, John Frum. And John Frum is now some sort of the messiah of the cargo cults. So the natives thought that Manahiti's plan sounded pretty good. They rebelled against the missionaries. Uh, they didn't kill them or anything, they just basically started ignoring them. They started wearing what they thought were western clothes, you know, like taking a necktie and wearing it as a loincloth or whatever. Kind of, there's some really goofy photographs of them doing this. And they were waiting for the promise to be delivered of all these material goods. But what happened then? World War II. The U.S. descended in force upon their island, um, employed them all as laborers, paid them relatively lavishly, gave them medical care, there was more food than they could eat. It was by far the best conditions that the New Henryans had ever enjoyed. So this religious promise had been made to them. Follow me and I shall deliver all these goods. And it's exactly what happened. It was just this perfect confluence of events that exactly what Manahivi predicted is exactly what happened. They had food, medicine, Coca Cola. Uh, they, they were just love and life. So the cargo cult beliefs had been validated uh, basically unquestionably as truth. You can't argue with that. During this period, um, Australian missionaries um, hired a, an educated guy from New Guinea named Yali. He was kind of a tribal leader and a smart guy. And the Australian missionaries hired Yali to go around to all the islands during the war and sort of try and play down this cargo cult thing, get people to follow Jesus and forget about this cargo cult nonsense, which Yali did to the best of his ability. They were very pleased with his service. And when the war ended, uh, they sort of rewarded Yali by bringing him to Australia and touring him around as something of a little minor celebrity. But that backfired. What Yali learned was, first of all, he saw that the Australians were very wealthy compared to people in New Guinea, New Hebrids, throughout the Pacific Islands. And he wondered why these people were so wealthy when these people were so poor. The second thing he noticed was that all sorts of sacred New Guinea artifacts were on display in museums. And he looked at that and he thought, Wow, they took our sacred items, and as a result, they're enjoying all this at home. are Seemed a rational conclusion, right? But he became very suspicious of the astronomers. And the third thing that he learned from these museums was the theory of evolution. he was smart enough, he uh, was completely convinced of evolution. He realized the Christian story of Adam and Eve was bullshit. And he basically told them to shove it, and he went back to uh, New Guinea and became an advocate for the cargo cults. Uh, <laughs> it didn't work very well uh, but, uh, for the Australians. But ever since, um, they still have John From Day, I believe it's a day in February every single year, where they still practice what, at its surface, seems to be very quaint and silly. But underneath it, it's got some pretty compelling uh, reasons why these people believe it. So number five. The Virgin of Guadalupe. This is a, a, a an episode of my podcast that I was going to do for a long time, but I got a number of warnings from people. I live in, in Southern Orange County. Um, we have a, a pretty strong Mexican population down there. And people were giving me warnings that if I did an episode about this, I would be in danger for my life. That some people would come and kill me for, for um, uh, disrespecting the Virgin of Guadalupe. Um, And I actually heeded that advice. I put the episode off for a while um, until I talked to some friends who kind of convinced me, oh, don't worry about it, go along with it. And I realized that I don't ever try to disrespect anything on my show. Fortunately, what I found when I researched the Virgin of Guadalupe is that if you look into the reasons, the true history behind this object, it's much more respectful to the actual cultural traditions of the Native Indians of, of Central America. So I decided to go ahead and do the episode. What the the object is actually what's called a tilma. It's a cactus fiber kind of a kind of a smock, kind of a shirt, kind of a cloak sort of form. And painted on the front of this tilma is the very familiar image of the Virgin Mary, an image that you've all seen a thousand times. Um, you'll see it on tattoos, you see it on bumper stickers, you see it on jewelry, you see it on art, on on sculptures. It's arguably the most popular single image in the entire world. The miracle story is that the image was miraculously imprinted onto this tilma. This tilma is a real physical object, it's on display in Mexico City. The fact is that the image was simply painted onto the fabric, but That's not what's interesting about the history of this object. In 1531, um, the conquistadors were charging across Mexico. Um, They converted some uh, eight million Aztecs to Catholicism. In 1531, there was a baptized Aztec named Juan Diego. The story says that he was walking along, he saw a glowing figure up on the hillside, and he went and uh, checked it out and it appeared to be the Virgin Mary, it was sort of a miraculous vision of the Virgin Mary and he spoke with her he ran back um, to his church and he told his bishop what he'd seen and he, the bishop told him go back and talk to her and ask her for some proof to show you who she actually is, so he goes okay right, I'll do that he goes back, she's still floating there on the hillside and uh, he says give me some proof, she says well okay climb to the top of this hill There you'll find some flowers. Pick those flowers and bring them back to me. He says, no, it's the wrong time of year. There's no flowers. She says, just go do it. So he goes and does it. There's flowers up there. He's miraculously amazed. He brings the flowers back to her. She takes his tilma and wraps the flowers in his tilma and says, now go and take these to your bishop. He takes the flowers to his bishop. He unrolls the tilma, the flowers spill out onto the ground, and he recognizes them as Castilian roses from his own hometown in Spain, which don't exist in Mexico. And moreover, the miraculous image of the Virgin Mary is now permanently imprinted on this tilma. And the church hung onto this tilma, they kept it, and it's actually still uh, there at the Basilica in Mexico City. It's actually in the archive somewhere, but it does exist for real. There's one that's on display that they say is real. It's not. It's a reproduction. But the real one is there and it is legit. So there's two typical treatments that this story gets. One, obviously, the Catholic believers, they accept the Miracle version of the story. And two, the skeptics, they, you know, look at the scientific evidence that shows, oh, it's just painted on the fabric. And I argue in favor of a third explanation, which is to find the real reasons that this cloak exists and what significance that it had in history. And it's crazy. It really... Um, there's so much depth you can go into studying how this thing came and why it, and it came to be. I'm just going to give you just the shortest overlook here, but it's, it's really something else. It's something that I highly recommend uh, anyone uh, research uh, further on your own. So in 1555, this is a few years after the 1531 story of Juan Diego, In 1555, the Dominicans were going around with this teal and they were using it sort of as a recruiting tool. They were showing the the Aztecs this image of the Virgin Mary printed on the teal And it was very successful. Um, They rallied around it everywhere they went. Uh, Like I said, it helped them baptize 8 million Aztecs. What they did was to leverage the similarity of the Virgin Mary to an existing Aztec goddess named um, Tononcine. Tononcine was a virgin goddess. She was believed to have a temple up on the same mountain where Juan Diego had his vision. So the Dominicans were in favor of this. They said, hey, this is great. Let's kind of ride the wave of this belief in Tononcine. Basically, we're just putting a name and a face on this existing legend that everyone already believes. It's going to be much easier for them. Now, the Franciscans got word of this. And the Franciscans were um, a little bit more scrupulous than the Dominicans. And they said, that's, that's not right. We shouldn't be, number one, the tone story is pagan and number two, it's, it's, it's dishonest for us to try and convince them that they're the same God. So as the Catholic Church likes to do, they got together and held a debate to basically vote on what's <laughs> the true doctrine and what they should actually do. Now, the minutes of this debate Still exist. They were kept by the church, and they can they can still be a, a rat of study. And during this debate, there were a number of witnesses who came up and said that the this tilma um, had been painted by an Aztec artist, who's a legitimate guy. His name was Marcos Cipac de Aquino, and he's one of three actual Aztec artists of the period whose names are known today. He was from the first European style school in Mexico called San Jose de los Naturales, the, the Catholic missionaries, they did do a lot of genuinely good things in addition to everything else they did. What's fascinating about the minutes of this debate is although there's these various mentions of the artist having been hired to paint the tilma, there's never any mention of the Juan Diego story, which supposedly happened 20 years before. And that leads us to suspect that, gee, in 1555, did this story even exist? Because surely someone would have mentioned it, since the whole trial was specifically about the value and the use of the steel line. Turns out the answer is no. The story did not yet exist in 1555. In 1556, a document was written called the Nikon Mopahua, and that's in the Nahuatl language of the of the Aztec. It was written by a scholar named Antonio Valeriano. He was a he was a Catholic from Spain. Um, he had studied... Um, actually, he was from Italy, excuse me. He had studied the Nahuatl language and he wrote this document, the Nican Mopahua. And essentially the purpose of this document was to support the Dominican side of the debate. It was literally fake history made up in the form of what appeared to be an authentic historical document to create and support this Juan Diego myth. Since the tilma, according to his story, was a genuinely miraculous item, it was therefore ethical to use it in the conversion of the Aztecs. So, Juan Diego story, 1531, 1555 was the debate, 1556 was when the story of Juan Diego first was written very interesting timeline. There's another very interesting piece of evidence in the Juan Diego story. And that has to do with his canonization by the church. And it's got another brilliant little timeline that goes with it. There's a document called the Codex Escalada, which is a piece of deer skin on which is painted the whole Juan Diego story. It still exists. You can look at it. There's pictures of it on the internet. You can make out. It's in very bad condition, but you can make out Here's Little Temple. Here's Juan Diego. Here's the flowers. Everything in the story is right there. And it's actually signed and dated. And is offered as proof that the Nikon Mopohua, the Juan Diego story, did exist before the Nikon Mopohua. So if what I'm telling you now is true, then this Codex Escalada would have to be fake. Well, let's see when it was found. In 1990, Juan Diego was beatified by the church. 1990 is when that happened. 1995 is when the Codex Escalada was discovered. 2002, Juan Diego was canonized. Exactly like the Nikon Mopahua being written to support the use of the teal in converting Aztecs, the Codex Escalada was essentially falsified and created to complete the conversion of Juan Diego from being beatified to being actually canonized as a saint, and he is now Saint Juan Diego. Here's why I think this story is so important and more people should know it. This, This image of the Virgin Mary, this Virgin of Guadalupe image, is arguably the most influential single piece of art in all of world history. Um, The conversion of the Mexican population to Catholicism is a massive event in the history of the Americans. Um, As far as pieces of art go, this one probably did more than any other piece of art in the world. And therefore, Marcos, the young Indian who painted it, is arguably the most successful artist in history. And yet, how much credit has he received for this? Zero. It is an extremely important example of Aztec contribution to Mexican history that's entirely overlooked, both by the people who accept the Miracle City and by the people who say, oh, it's just a painted teal So this is not something that we should debunk. In fact, I think very few stories are something that should simply be debunked. Instead, we should look behind them and find what's truly valuable to learn from them. If you're Mexican and you want to be proud of your Mexican Aztec heritage, this is a story that you should embrace wholeheartedly. You should dismiss the miracle explanation because it completely cuts the Aztec uh, contribution out of the cultural history. And if, you, if you've you done your job well as a skeptic, your audience is always gonna have something to talk about rather than something taking something away. Always give the audience something. You never simply take something
0: away from them. clean Don't have no faults Now I take the gospels Whenever it's possible But always with a grain of salt
1: Music provided by Joey Fabian You can find more of his music by looking for Joey Fabian on iTunes Hey, this is Jonathan Colton, and you're listening to a podcast released under a Creative Commons license. CC, baby. Check it out.
0: I'm no man was 900 years I'm preaching the sermon to show It ain't as a, ain't ain't Really So